We were children of the Silicon Revolution, an X-generation conscripted to fight the console and home computer wars. A product of an analog 70s childhood, we came of digital age in the 80s, believing we could affect the world eight bits at a time. Armed with joysticks, full-stroke keyboards, jolt cola, and MTV haircuts, we proceeded into the vertical blank. There, we stayed up late at night, devising incantations from D&D rulebooks and beginner's all-purpose symbolic instruction code. Video games were the match, and programming was the fuse, as the infinite possibilities of the digital world exploded into the internet age to come. We are Generation Atari. So let's, hey, Jeff, it's episode 18. We're back with some news and kind of a little story about Karataka today because um, I was looking at our top 50 that we did last time and noticed that Karataka, which is a really great game, actually didn't make it to the top 50 even though Atari released it. So, it so Atari released Karataka on the, the XGS. Yes, yeah. Oh man, we—that's a big miss, right there. Yeah, it's a big but miss. I said so, it wasn't. It was just what we felt at the time. It wasn't sure. But you know what? Um, I'll say that a lot of people gave us good feedback about our top fifty list. People like lists. I think we'll probably end up doing more shows where we have lists. But I want to talk about Karataka, and I also have a story that I wrote about uh, George Mechner's book, Making of Karataka. So oh, we'll that's play great. that at the end. Perfect. Um, so a little bit, Ferg's last show was really good. It was about Party Mix. So the Atari VCS Game by Game podcast about Party Mix, which is a supercharger game. You know how partial we are to super, supercharger games. I love the supercharger. But- there were some comments about our show in it, which was interesting, by one of the listeners. I wish I caught his name. He said he liked the top 50 list. Ferg said he liked the story episodes. Hey, I, I liked hearing some nice feedback, so that was pretty cool. Um, the, the listener actually um, uh, was telling Ferg about the uh, the interview that you did with the guy from Oh, uh, that's GCC. right. It was Steve Golson. I, yeah. I do hope to... Um, and Steve... Steve, we gotta, oh, sorry, go on, Steve. I've been in contact with Steve since then. He just had a great interview on the uh, High Score show on Netflix. Oh, yes, he did. Episode one. Golson um, has wanted to do an update, so we'll do that. I don't know if it's going to end up in this season or next season, but we'll see. So we've got a couple. We've got some feedback. We got some emails over the last couple of weeks, and let me let me go through them really quick. A few I've answered back, and a few I haven't had time to. So let's go to the the most recent one which was from David Schmidt, and he asked a really good question. He said, hey, guys, do you know if it's possible to get dual joysticks working on the main version of Food Fight? I've discovered the 700 version on the new Evercade handheld console, and now I'd like to get the arcade version working on my main setup. Oh, yeah, I, I just dual- want to point out the Evercade version is great on that little Evercade handheld. I, I have to try that. Um, I didn't know it was on the side. I didn't know the 700 version. I haven't got an Evercade yet. That's going to be a Christmas purchase for me. I love it. Like I'm going to buy, I'm an SG, I'm going to buy it myself. I'm going to Evercade in all the cartridges I can for Christmas. I, just I can it get right it now. for you for Christmas if you want. Okay, we can, we can think about that. Okay. Anyway, um, so that's a great idea, actually. He said, I have dual digital joysticks that work great for, say, Robotron, but Food Fight doesn't work no matter what settings I try. Okay, here's my answer to that. I just tried MAME, three different versions of MAME on my RetroPie. And I'm going to answer him in email too, so he doesn't have to listen to this to get it. I could not get the digital, the analog joystick to work in main. But on the RetroPie, there's another arcade system set up, and I will get it and put it in the show note. That arcade system automatically uses one analog joystick because there weren't two on Food Fight. There was a fire button, and the analog controller moved your arm, but you didn't have two. It had a spinner, right? It had a spinner a spin- control. Oh, it had a sp- sort of a spinner control. But the analog joystick works beautifully on that. So on the RetroPie, there is one. I will get the name. I, I just, I, the only reason I don't have a name is because I turned it off too quickly before I came in here. But it's a whole different arcade emulation system that uses MAME ROMs. But it has its own setup. And it does use the analog uh, hey, stick you, on my Xbox. Um, if you get the name stick. of it, we'll just errata right here. 
boys, boys, boys I could not stay quiet and listen to you two nerdlingers mangle the retro pie. I've been holed up in Blackpool this entire pandemic and I finally got a chance to listen to this drivel you were putting out every couple weeks. Can you see now why I had to stop working with you two? Your mistakes are just too much to bear. The arcade emulator that will play Food Fight and have the analog stick configured properly is the Project Hyperpi Arcade Emulator. It is simply called Arcade and not MAME. They seem to be based on possibly the same source, but the Hyperpi team has configured the emulator to be used with more sophisticated cabinets and controllers. There are also versions for desktop PCs and other devices. Okay, back to my son tanning. Ta ta. Okay, so that's a good. Any other emails, Jeff? Yes, Richard Broadhurst. I was just enjoying season three, episode fourteen, and heard you say that someone was working on a pixel perfect space invader. I wrote a version last year that isn't pixel perfect, but that's another story. And he has a version here. Said you can play it with BBC goldbolt.org if you don't have a bc micro recommended or a local emulator use disk from examples or the local ssd while holding down shift and tapping f12 on windows or mapping etc some games will be available free on disk later this year so basically here's a guy who made a version of bbc micro space invaders and i will put the link in the show notes this is from ricky Tricky Broadhurst. <laughs> cool. So That's Ricky will definitely get that link into our show notes so people can try it out. So Christopher says, oh, it's Chris Plus Plus. He says, hey, fellas, I just listened to your awesome episode about Electronic Games Magazine, and it occurred to me that you might enjoy an interview I managed to secure with the Game Doctor 18 years ago. Damn, it's been that long. And that is at orphanedgames.com slash kunkel. I'll put that in the show notes also. I just remembered a separate thing. My buddy Adam and I attended the World of Atari 1998 convention in Las Vegas. I recorded the keynote lectures delivered by three Electronic Games founders. They're transcribed at the link below. And while my grammar back then wasn't as precise as I tried to make it these days, we all know about that, right? I think you might dig reading what Katz, Kunkel, and Whirly had to say in 1998. Joyce didn't talk much. Oh, okay. And here, here's the link. It's also orphanedgames.com slash OCGS, issue 9, WOA98.html. That link will go in the show notes also. Again, this is just yeah. presuming you're interested. We are interested. We are. Plus, plus, that's really cool. I would say that like there is not enough journalism about the electronic games and the people who created the first real well-known video game magazine, at least in the USA. And I, I think that uh, Chris doing that is great. We have some interviews of our own with uh, Bill Kunkel and Artie Katz as well. Just we'll put the links in and everybody can take a look at, um, yeah, yeah. at those. I just now, I think I've already did this a while ago, approved a comment from Atari Crypt, who had sent a comment to, who is uh, runs an incredible Atari ST site, atarycrypt.wordpress.com, that link will go in. He is, this is about our, our top 50 favorite games from Atari. His comment was, grab a coffee, sit back, relax, loving it. That was, nice. that was um, let's see, what else showed People up? People love top lists. I remember when crack.com was all top lists and you'd read it, and they really weren't lists. But the but the but the titles were lists, and so you'd read them anyway. You know, I don't like to do only lists, but I but I think that that's a it's kind of a fun thing to get into is more. No, well, list every once in a while is great. Please, here's one send. from from Kevin. Kevin Chase in the law says, catching up on this great podcast, I just found there's no MP3 link for a certain one. So this is how you download episodes if you want them. You go to into the vertical blank you click yeah. on the episode, you click on share, and then there's a download button. Yeah, so, there's a little download arrow at the top. That's how you do it. I sent him an alternate link. They said, by the way, Clawhammer from season one was by far the best podcast segment I've listened to hands down. Don't stop what you're doing. I'm sure I'm not the only one who appreciates all the work you put into the podcast. So that was that was from yeah, Kevin People Chase. seem to like that Clawhammer one. I wish I had another story. Well, you was- do. You have them in you. You, because you're very creative and you can really set a mood. So I think they're there. It's just we're, we mined everything you had written for the last 20 years into the oh, first I've got three a years. lot more stories. I just meant I want like something that would match up to that one itself. Got it. Um, got it's it. tough because it's, a, it's an absolutely 100% true story that lives in the vertical blank. And it's hard, you know, it's hard to, it's, it's, it's hard, you know, to match 
the the thoughts and things that came over that weekend. Right. So you know, I mean, Dad unveiled to us things that we'd never heard before, and exactly. we did things with them we never did before, and you know, it's sort of like it's also kind of like a a, a generational story because he was from the greatest generation, we were Generation X, and he was trying to teach us about hard work and stuff like that. And well, I'll put it this way: so yesterday, Ryan, who, my son, who is fifteen helped me hang doors properly on an Ikea cabinet, which actually is one of the hardest things you can do in the entire world because they, they never close properly. But he helped me hang them, and then I gave him $40 allowance for the last two weeks. <laughs> so it's kind of the same, right? He got, he got to do, he got to work with the, screw, the, ele the electric screwdriver, and he got to figure out how we hang these properly, and he actually had fun. And so, you know, but... um there's not enough of that going on on in suburbia with with my um millennial children are they millennials? Well, i'll tell you they're, that, no, not millennials they're they're generation y or z or something like that right like yeah i was just redoing the garage because uh, my wife has to teach third grade from the garage now in the garage virtually and i redid all my tools and i you you helped me go get the tool one of my toolboxes but i redid all my tools and that the hammer is still there front and center that's awesome. And that tools. So anyway, Mine was stolen. Oh, um, uh, Matt Larson. Okay. Uh, like the post about the expansion module. Let's that's see. Kurt Vendel's XM module. So I think that's the end of the, the feedback for the last couple of months. Um, lots of good stuff though. Thank you. Oh, so we've got 15 five-star ratings for the podcast and a bunch of reviews. Uh, let's, let's, let's push for 20 five-star ratings by the end of the year and a maybe a couple more reviews, maybe a couple more good reviews up there. And I did read somewhere where 50 listens a month for podcasts was good because there's so many podcasts out there that's oh, hard to get. There's a billion podcasts out there. Right. And, um, and we have multiple times that. So I'm actually kind of satisfied that we're starting to reach an audience of people who are interested and care about this type of thing, yeah. which is cool. So, you know, sometimes I get a little like, I was like, oh, there should be more people. I'm like, why? Like, why? 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 Like we we're reaching a, a good set of quality people that really want to hear the type of stuff that we're doing and want to join in and send emails and stuff like that and be part of what's going on. So I think it's really cool and very satisfying. So let's just let's just keep it up. Anyway, so some Atari news, modern Atari. Apparently, Atari Coin is going on sale soon. There's affiliate links for it where I guess you get some money for selling it. I know Atari Edge, which is one a Twitter account that has a lot of modern Atari news, posted a link with an affiliate link. The Atari coin thing is interesting. I, I don't know if cryptocurrency... I thought the bottom dropped out of the cryptocurrency industry. Well, okay, the bottom, bottom didn't. Did you listen? Oh, you didn't? No. Did you listen to the most recent... The most recent podcast of Reply All is from like two years ago. But Bitcoin was worth like... twenty. Uh, a Bitcoin that was purchased for $8, you know... 15 years ago or whatever, 10 uh -huh. years ago, is now worth $16,000. So the bottom may have fallen out, but Bitcoin's still around. Now, it turns out that it's not nearly as transparent about who does things as blockchain would like because there's Bitcoin hunters out there who can figure out who did what and, and you don't who mean you transparent. Are. You mean it's it's not as not as secure. Hidden, not as not secure. as hidden. It's secure. It's just not as hidden. They can they can figure out what happened. Not that it matters, but you know. So, so yeah, I think I thought that maybe this is kind of late to the game for a a digital currency. So Atari Coin. I mean, I'm I'm obviously not going to invest in it or anything. I think that if Atari could make some money on the Atari Coin and the Atari Hotel license and the Atari Box, and then they would actually do the things that we really wish they would do with their old content like when we talk about kurt we can talk about one of the things that he was trying to get done um, that never happened i think that'd be cool i think those ideas are not there for them i think they they don't really care as much about the old stuff like we do at all and really you know they care about using the atari name to move on and they own it so they can do that and that's fine it's just it's not it's kind of not what we would hope for so you know yeah um I wish someone would like they would sell off the Atari Classic label or something, and then let someone just run with that, and then they can do whatever they want with the new new thing, and someone else could actually like mine the classics and do it right. But so apparently the Atari box is coming out November twentieth. Really? Uh, 
they so I have some questions. So AntStream apparently, which is a streaming platform from the UK that streams like Amiga games and and some other like like British computer games. We it's right up our alley, Jeff. No ST games yet that I can find, but um, but AntStream supposedly has a deal with Atari to to have more different games than supposedly are on Atari Vault, but there hasn't been a lot of news about that. So I'd like to understand exactly what Anstream is going to have. It's a pretty cool service itself. I played a bunch of games on it. It's fun. You can get high scores and all sorts of stuff that go along with streaming your old computer games. Um, there's also hmm. some like Sega stuff and some other platforms. I mean, just because it's Atari, they should have a wide range of ST games, but I don't mind playing the Amiga versions, so that's okay. But I mean, just it's an Atari thing. Atari should not be putting anything up that does not celebrate all of their platforms, right? Like, I just think that they need to, if they're going to use Antstream, they need to get a bunch of ST games out there, especially early ones that didn't make it to the Amiga. Um, yeah, but, well, I like the, I, you know, I don't mind Amiga games, but I mean, a lot of nostalgia is nuances. Yeah, of course. A lot of it has to do with sounds and speeds of graphics and things like that. And, and, and that, you know, that's lost when it's not the same platform. Of course. So they also licensed 15 titles to Intellivision for yeah. the Amico. That's really cool. Um, I still want to find out if those games are going to find their way back to the VCS. That'd be cool. You mean the or Amico just, exclusives? Like yeah. the versions of them? Yeah, because they're, I mean, obviously they're done probably with, with Unity or something that you could you could probably port them to other platforms. It would be great. The other thing is, so Missile Command Recharge and Pong Quest are supposed to be on the VCS. That's actually good news. Those are pretty cool games. What yeah, about we, their Atari, what about your question to them about the Atari Vault? No, they never answer. Whenever, there's there's a guy on, on Twitter who will come out and defend the Atari coin, Atari VCS box, all this stuff. But whenever you actually ask them any questions about the platforms it's like mums the word but i did hear that missile command recharge and Quest are supposed to be on the platform on but the, the 150 game atari vault we don't know yet and that's one that includes actual 5200 games which are very much atari 800 versions of games right um, the thing is i think is that pong quest was supposed to be there i did see that pong quest was made by game maker made with game maker sorry not oh. with Oh, wow. That's interesting to me. Okay, if you remember the Gobbler, which is a hat that was one of the worst products ever made. We'll put another uh, picture up on it. In, like this. Season 2, which is a hat that kind of had a weird mustachioed Pac-Man on the front. Yeah, it was a weird, weird. Anyway, I do think that if Atari would make a speaker hat out of that, I'd be all over it. Like, I would buy that. Well, yeah. Bluetooth, like, a uh, Gobbler hat? Yeah. Yes, a Bluetooth Gobbler speaker hat. I'd, I'd buy that. So, okay, Evercade has a couple Lynx carts coming out. They're pre-order now. They look great. One is all the, I think they're all the first-party Atari games, and one are one is all the Epics games. Oh, cool. And I'd like to see one that's all the Atari games games, too. But um, but tell me about Fuji, FujiNet. I went to go buy a FujiNet, and it's sold out. So FujiNet is, because I've had so many problems with my Atari STEs lately, I haven't been able to get to FujiNet. So I... I, my Atari ST, my four meg Atari STE, its sound went out. Both sound, both digital. So there's like there's a sound mixer chip on it that wasn't working. So I ordered a relatively cheap Atari ST from the UK that it said the floppy drive wasn't working, and I was hoping that it would work, but it doesn't. It doesn't work with any floppy drives or any any drives. So I tried to cannibalize it for parts to fix together Atari STE. Now I have two broken Atari STEs. Anyway, so in, so instead of installing FujiNet and playing with it. I uh, I did that. So I broke two STs, STEs. But FujiNet is basically has an SD card and it allows you to hook up to the internet your Atari your Atari computer. I have it sitting right here in a box, and I'm getting ready to test it out today, probably because I can. But I got to go and read all the instructions because it's really cool. And it, um, I think it cost me about sixty-five bucks to get it. And I also have the interview with Thomas Cherry Holmes coming up. I started editing that, but I want we wanted to get this out first. So our next episode will be all about FujiNet, and I will have tested FujiNet by the time we get that interview out. So I'll have a little segment on playing with it, too. Cool. So there were a couple really cool VCS homebrews that I oh, saw. Uh, Robotron, maybe we talked about that before, but Xevious is coming out, or Zevius? Well, I'll call it Z whatever. Zevius looks incredible. Yeah, it does. It's a 30 frames a second swapped out, you know, 30-30 yeah. method. But it, but I guess that's a pretty viable method to make games. Well, when you play them on a VCS or on emulation, they work great. They look great. 
Yeah. If you try and stop and take a picture, you're only going to get one of the frames, and so you're not going to get everything on the screen. But I think what they discovered is basically a, a method of how the VCS could have gone further, you know, yeah, into they the, did. into and, and they, it took a while. It took some time to discover it because you probably maybe couldn't even do it without, you know, until now or couldn't figure it out. But it's pretty cool. I don't know. Maybe maybe David Crane figured that out a long time ago. No idea. I don't know what the, what, the, what technology they're using. I wish we could get an interview with one of them to find out. But there, I think they're using an extra chip, I'm guessing, that lets it split the frames. And so basically you have almost like having two VCSs running at the same time. Yeah, they could be have an onboard chip, I, I wonder. So let's let's talk really quick about Kurt Vendel because he, we just got a great interview with him a couple months ago, two-parter. It's actually, it was almost a three-parter. Uh, and Kurt passed away last, last Sunday. Yeah, it was incredibly sad. Kurt was um, a pioneer in all things Atari. He used to go dumpster dive when he was a teenager, get all the stuff. He runs or currently ran the Atari Museum Dot com, which is just an incredible resource where you, I know lately you've been going to cannibal, not cannibalizing, but well, you've, been going, you've been going to finding great links. stuff. Yeah. I wasn't taking his out. pictures or anything. I was just linking off to his stuff there. No. Yeah. You're doing some great links to his stuff. Um, there's well, so I thought it was many... fun. I was doing a little bit of research on, on Atari vaporware. I think we should do an episode about it as well later. Yeah. There's so many great things there. And Kurt was working really hard on a bunch of projects. He was working, unfortunately, his um, choice was to work on the 7800, which is one of the most difficult hardware pieces to work on. Well, and I think there's a reason for that. I think he, like us, thought that it was a missing, like a missed opportunity it and was. wanted to fix it. And there's a, there's a part of Atari fandom that's actually like not just saluting the past, but wanting to fix it. To fix and, Atari, right? We want to fix Atari. That's kind of like like homebrews a little bit that way, especially the seven hundred is like, it's like what if and seven hundred homebrews, right? Yeah. Seven hundred and twenty, even twenty six hundred homebrews are like what if? Like yeah. these machines could have done it, and it's a little bit like what I'm trying to do with my STE game, and you're trying to do with your seven hundred one is like what if? What if? I, what if we could have actually had a chance to program games back then, and I could target the STE? What could I have done? You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so Kurt was, I mean, he really, you know, his, his episodes are great. You should listen to those. I know there's even more that we may release later. He has, the, so there's a memorial fund for his daughter set up by the um, mortuary. I'm going to donate to it. Me too. And, and we'll put a link in the show notes. I'll too. put a link in the show notes for that. The thing that I thought was amazing that I heard that I had never heard before was reading around was the Flashback 3. So remember the Flashback 2 had a cartridge port for the VCS, at least on the motherboard. I don't know if it actually... Right. You, could you, had, you, you, had to, you had to create, you had to hack it to get the cartridge port to work. Apparently the Flashback 3 was Kurt was, was talking to Atari about the fact that they owned all the 8-bit computer stuff. And they were going to make an 8-bit compatible Flashback 3 with all the games, the oh APX stuff, Caverns of Mars, like all those great 8-bit games that were way better than, you know, probably 5200 support as well, but I don't know. That would have been incredible, right? Is again, was yeah. Kurt trying to fix, you know, something that Atari couldn't fix themselves? I don't know. I mean... It would have been great. Then I think what I think I remember, this is, here's a little Kurt story. You and I went to... Uh, E3 here in Los Angeles. I think it was 2004 or five or something like that. And we went to at the first time I'd ever seen at games and we went to the thing and there was a, a flashback Atari VCS. And the next day we'd been working with Kurt and Marty trying to maybe do a couple um, flash games for Atari. Well, this was maybe earlier than that. But yeah. anyway, we've been working with them a little bit and we, I, and I emailed Kurt, and I said, do you know about this? And he, he emailed back, he's all, I know all about it. Like he was so pissed off that Flashback 3 was coming out by At Games and it wasn't his design. Oh yeah, yeah, that sucks. So, I mean, the, I mean uh, Kurt being gone is like, it's just it's like- a huge loss. It's a huge loss. The interview we did with him, there was, it was so good. And, you know, I couldn't wait and he had, you know, after we did that, he friended me back on Facebook again and on Twitter, and I felt like he was coming back. Yeah, really, really, really huge loss. Huge loss for us, um, just because because he was he you know he was gonna he was gonna bring the seventy hundred back. You know, I mean, so many cool things that were in his head um, that he was gonna do. 
So I know that Marty is going to pick up some of that and help with it, but um, that's that's a difficult job. For or Marty's me. going to find someone to do it. He, I mean, yeah. Kurt was working with someone else to get that done. So Kurt was doing the hardware and someone else was doing the software for it. And that's bio, the BIOS and making the BIOS have like interesting, cool stuff in it. What that the um, if the hardware works and it's just software that needs to be done, it the XM probably could be done. But it probably needs a few hardware tweaks to get it to work with all the beta testers out there because of all the 7,000 different versions of the 7800. Sure, the 7800 is a difficult thing to make stuff for. Hey. It's a billion degrees outside, and my wife got me a cookies and cream ice blended something or other from, um, from Starbucks. So. Nice job. We're making ribs today. I don't know how that's going to go over with the heat, but it'll be great. So let's talk about programming a little bit because we've been both been working on programming. Let's talk about programming, Steve. So I I started a new game called Number Crusher. Yes, we've seen it the video. It was called Number Muncher and then and then it, someone told me that there was a uh, Apple game called Number Munchers. I didn't want to mess with anyone's nostalgia so I changed the name to Number Crusher, which actually is closer to what it is. So this is in the vein of what we're talking about about things that Atari never never did. Is I was right. like I was thinking, what's the first Atari VCS game we ever played? And I realized when I was thinking about it, because I was writing a story about that for the podcast, that it probably was Street Racer, right, for the VCS. And my favorite uh, variation of Street Racer is Number Number Cruncher, which for I don't know why you eat numbers. It's just bizarre. I remember okay. playing two two players with the paddle side by side with you. you. That's two all. players side by side. Yeah, it was cool. So I was like, what if for the 7800, Atari went back and made some of their older games for 7800. And so I'm like, hey, I could do that. I, what if I, because I ran into some technical issues with Into, in, into the Void, which is my side-scrolling shooter, that I was like, oh, I've got to go back and rethink about bank switching, some other things. And I was like, oh, I, and I have to, I have to figure out, you could do, get some practice doing pixel graphics and stuff. And, you know, I ran into like a wall where I'm like, oh, I, I'm not getting anything done. So I decided to start something new. And by working on Number Crusher, I've actually solved some of those problems, especially when it comes to bake switching and memory management and stuff like that. But at the same time, I'm like, oh, wouldn't it be cool to have a game like what, reimagine what if they made Number Cruncher for the 7800? So that's what I'm doing. It's actually thrillingly fun to do and getting my 7800 Gills. graphic skills up at least to make some stuff that's actually that actually don't don't not embarrass to show people so they also added recently added paddle support to 700 basic which is cool because it wasn't there before although i've decided not to use paddles for the uh, for number crusher i was thinking about it and there's also high score support which is interesting because it takes over the entire screen for you so so you don't you have to like capture the fire button and stuff on it's very interesting implementation the other thing i want to say is so revenge the guy i think he works on 700 basic and i think he also builds atari yes he does they stay in concert completely yeah rev the well the atari dev studio for 700 is awesome yeah it's awesome he um i bought his game time salvo oh i have uh, one too which is kind of like targ and wizard of war together yeah it's awesome it's awesome. Yeah. It's awesome. I, it's, I looked at it and I was like, wow, this is... This there is, is a game for the Atari 8-bit and uh, the Commodore 64 that it's sort of like, but this is um, this is better. So the other thing is 8bitworkshop.com, Stephen Hug over there. I'm wait, waiting for whatever new books he wants to write about it. He added support for the 5200, the 7800, the Sega Master System, and ColecoVision. So now, you know, you could build games if you wanted to for all the... I guess you call them third generation systems, the 7800, the SMS, and the NES, all from his interface. He also has this thing called Ditherton, which lets you load in an image and then sort of kind of mess with it and turn it into, you know, pixelated images and stuff. But there's some options to export it to the platforms that are supported oh. on this platform. So you can take a an image, load it up, and then export it to Antic Mode D for the 5800. You can export it for a VCS, NES, C64, Apple. It's really cool. It's not perfect yet, but it's a great tool to take like a bitmap and turn it into something that you want to display, you know, mess around with the title screen and stuff like that. So he's, his stuff is really, I mean, really advancing. He supports so many things. So it's really cool. That's really cool. I have been working on my game called Grifter. And Grifter is a Gorf-like game. Not exactly Gorf. It's Gorf-like. Like, I'm probably going to have the... It's probably... This um, is for what platform? For the Sorry. For the Atari STE. 
um, because I want to I want to be able to in Stoss. So Stoss is not as fast as doing something in assembly language, I or even GFA Basic three point five. But I found that once I compile it and I use the various the uh, the various libraries that are available for it, that are the third party sort of plug-in libraries and, and extensions, you can do some really cool stuff. And you're basically using Stoss as the basic programming engine, but everything you're doing is with these extensions. So Stoss becomes just a way to compile things. And you're using some of what Stoss has in it. And so that use doing it this way means that it could be ported to Amos too later on and done for an Amiga or something like that. I'm trying to make a game that's a little bit like Gorf, except for I want a really nice scrolling background, even though you're not really it's not really a a vertical scrolling game, but I want a really nice, like, sort of space background, not just dots for stars, but like a nebula or something that slowly scrolls behind you while you're going against these various levels. Oh, yeah. And some digital music from one of the... So make, go, go into Acid, make some new digital music, and then drop it in and, and see how it works. I've been slowed down a little bit because I got to a point where um, I, I started designing graphics with Ari's sprite lib, I would take Ari um, Feldman Sprite Lib and open it up in the paint.net so I could see it, so I could see his graphics. Mm -hmm. Then I would, in Degas, uh, for the ST, I would try to make a color palette that was as close as I could get it to. And then the color palette, he had, his color palette is 256 colors, so I got 16 to work with. So what I did was I tried to match his ideas for shading and doing the sprite, so I made a, a B... Not a bee. I made a like a bug, sort of like a bug that would be in um, Galaga, and I made a ship, and they look really good because I'm using his ideas. Plus, he he has a free book out there that allows you to see his ideas and how he shades things and stuff. So I'm trying to draw the graphics myself. So it takes a little while, but so far they look pretty good. Oh, you should um, put a link to that book in the show notes. We will. I have it. Um, I think we did it in the last one. We'll do it again. Uh, I'll find them. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing some result of this. Because um, I'm trying to get a demo out. I uh, today I was going to work on it yesterday and today, but I think IKEA furniture took up all of my weekends so far. So today I was planning on working a little bit on it and see what I can get with it with the shooting. I need to get shooting and I need to get some aliens in a formation. Right now, it's just my demo of them moving. Um, I really want to get digital music and a scrolling background before I have any type of a demo. Got, so, got it. Totally understand. That's I want to have everything in there and have it running at a really nice frame rate. So it means I got to optimize the basic and stuff like that. So totally um, understand and get so, it compiled. So let's let's move on to the feature of this episode, which is really kind of it's based on the a fact that feature. I it's a mini feature, yeah, of this in sort of in between our episode. So like I said before, I noticed that. Karatika or Karatika or Karatika, or however you want to say it, but I'm going to call it Karatika because that's what I've been calling it for the you last You and I and Eric both called it Karatika and it's not changing. Sure. It can't change. It's, it's stuck in my mind. So it was number 60 on our list. So it was in the honorable mention list. Uh, and I think since it was released on the XEGS and it's an amazing game, even on the, the Atari 8 bit especially is good because it's a more colorful version of the Apple version. Probably just a port directly from the 6502 assembly the, language. That being that being said, though the Apple version looks really close. It uh, it does. So I just want to talk about Karatika a little bit because I remember this as like the first actual fighting game I ever played, like karate fighting game. But it was insanely hard. But was so good looking you couldn't stop playing it. <clears throat> I have gone and looked at every single version that was out there. And so I, I have some little notes about all the different versions. Okay. Well, let's let's talk about that in a sec. Yeah, I just um, want to let you know that. So, and, and this is, this. I think I allude to this in the feature coming up, which is a review of Jordan Mechner's book about making Karataka. But he made all the, Mechner made all the graphics himself by, I think he photographed or videotaped his, or filmed his brother doing karate moves. And oh, yeah. then he, um, he digitized some of those frames and turned them into animated frames. And it was basically one of the first 
you know, pieces of rotoscoping for video games. I think Ralph Bakshi had done rotoscoping for some of the um, movies, some of the animated movies he made. But this was one of the, and and rotoscoping had been done, I think, way in the past. I think even the original uh, Snow White was done with some rotoscoping. But anyway, it's old, older technique. But but this is one of the first times it was done for video games, if not the first time. Although people always seem to find someone who did, did something earlier. But you know, you would you would move side to side in two. You had a running. You could run or walk. Walk was like a sort of a attack fight, and you could punch and kick multiple ways. I think there are three of each, or at least three kicks: down, middle, up, and then you could punch one or two ways move backwards and forwards and you could run and you had to know when to run because if you, and, and when to walk and if you're running and you ran into a guy you died in, instantly because you admit you weren't ready to fight but there were times when you needed to run it was such an incredible looking game where you know i mean most of most of the games we played before this were you know not strategically oriented right you're just sort of mashing the buttons and and trying to figure out what to do and in this game seemingly things that would help you would hurt you so I just remember the a couple things like the bird, which would kick your ass oh, God. into the building, right? Or going from inside to outside. But my favorite thing was the fact that at the end of the game, there was this big joke where you kill the end guy to go to save the princess, but you have to know you can't move up towards the princess in in the fight mode. You can't. Oh yeah, you can't run to her either. No, right? you have to run to her. You have to run. Oh, you run, but you if, can't be in fighting stance. No, if you're in fighting stance, she'll kick you in the shins and kill you. <laughs> <laughs> it was fantastic. So thank you, I, you Jordan. Know, I remember doing. I remember the getting thing, there, like, getting those, killed. Those types of like twists and you know, it seems like a cheap joke now, but it was that was kind of a revolutionary thing at the time, you know, to, to have like something at the end where like that would make you have to play again, right? right? You know, you have to play again and make it all the way through and do it right. It's it's a little bit like the Stanley parable. It, it was it was a very interesting way to go about the game. So I think we played this for the first time at our friend's Eric's house down the street, probably in the early eighties. On, on his Apple II. On his Apple II. I don't know exactly when, maybe it was the eighty 83 or 84. I don't know exactly when it came out. This so this game and games like Amazon, which was another um, sort oh, of yeah. Apple II high res game, they both came out for the Atari 800. These were two of the style of games that were like you couldn't get on a 2600 or a Intellivision or a ColecoVision. These were games at the time that was like computers did this. Even yeah. though there were adventure this games. This is what like, a computer did, right? right the closest exactly. you may get is like a Smurf Rescue on the ColecoVision. And even then, it just wasn't... Right. This was a game that took up an entire 96K disc. Or this is a game that, you know, used all 48K RAM in your computer. Exactly. So before we get to your story, I just want to go through, you know... I, I, well, we, I there's several versions. Oh, yeah. I, well, so... I've, um, I researched the versions. I did go to the Gaming History Sources YouTube channel to look at them. I also played a few of them on the RetroPie, and I played a few of them just on my machine. So I, the first one I drug out was the Atari ST one, and it's beautiful looking. It and actually out plays like, pretty well. It was, when did it come out? I think it, the date says 86, which, which would make it one of the first one of the, Atari Yeah, it, it, was, it came out in about 86 or 87. It is beautiful looking. The sounds aren't great. The sounds um, are just dreadful. But, but it looks really good. It animates really well. And you don't die as often as you do in other versions. So that is one to try, at least for me or anyone that wants to emulate ST version. It is good. The Apple, Atari 8-bit, and Commodore 64 versions are still the best 8-bit versions, all based off the same 6502 code base. I think that for me of those versions i do think the atari 8-bit version looks the best i'm not trying to be biased i just think it does it has a nice set of color to go with the what was was mostly the dithered four color mode on the apple high res mode yeah it looks pretty apple 2 and the Commodore 64 would look kind of similar i'll tell you that of the eight other 8-bit versions there's this amstrad cpc version that is i it's not a full 320 by 200 like the st and 16 colors I think it's a little, the resolution a little less. It is beautiful looking. The Spectrum is, looks pretty good. It's, a, it's, it's in black and white. I mean, it kind of plays okay. MS-DOS one looks okay in CGA. It sounds awful and it's just weird, but the animation's nice. The, there's a, a Nintendo version. It's actually okay. It's pretty good, the NES. And then the Game Boy version called Master Chronica. It's pretty good. 
But the worst one that should have been the best is the Atari 7800 Oh, version. my God. It is, it, it is awful. It, is it awful. looks okay, but looks not like even Delta. looks good. I mean, it could even look so much better. I don't understand. It, they could have done the Amstrad CPC version on the 7800 with no problem. And they I could feel have had this, like it's yeah. unfinished. There's, there's several 7800 games that I feel when uh, Tremiel came out. Now, I don't know. I can't. This is all from speculation. Conjecture. Uh, this is all conjecture. But I feel like there were games that if the, if the 7800 actually had started in 84 and continued, these games would have actually been better or got better revs, have been finished. I don't think this is finished. Just like Galaga. I don't think Galaga was finished either for the 7800. I think they were rushed out the door, you know, finished up what was there, you know, but didn't really take them any further. And this this seems like one of them. So Video Game Critic Online is the only one with a view, review I could find a Chronica. I was looking for some review that came out at the time, but I'm sure there's one somewhere. I just wanted to read a little bit of what, about what he said. What a link to it, too, then. Yeah, we'll have a link to it, of course. It just wanted, now, I'm not going to read the whole review, just, just a tiny bit. It says, whoa, this is simply horrendous. Atari's taken a classic martial arts game and completely ruined it. Just be glad I've gone through this torture so you don't have to. And that's pretty much how I feel about it, too. It, it is, it's just, I don't, it's the one game you'll open 700 and go, why? Like, why? This is obviously not finished. Okay, my- so let me read you his review of the Atari 8-bit version. Okay. Oh, okay. He, this one, that one got an F, right? Yeah, it's an F. This gets an A-, minus, and this is the difference. This is, it says, before the NES unleashed a deluge of ninja games on us, there was Karateka, a stylish title that treated martial arts with the reverence it deserves. I remember watching the kids in high school play this on the Apple II in the computer lab and not letting me have a chance. Yeah, we all had problems <laughs> like that. May those heartless bastards burn in hell. With mind-blowing graphics and a cinematic flair, Karateka was far ahead of its time. The Atari 8-bit version is an A-. We were, or I gave it an A+, but it's fine. I was looking for the 700 one to be an A+. Like, with the capabilities of this machine, they should have been able to make, like, fast action, all stuff. It is a dog. Yeah, it is. It's a dog in comparison. And that's one reason why when we were thinking about Karataka, the list, I didn't necessarily think about the, the, the XEGS version. I was thinking about the 700 version. And so, well, yeah, huh. and I and I thought about the eight bit version, and but, but I put I put it higher than you, um, and the reason why I got number sixty is you were not thinking about it. That's because it, the seven eight hundred version sort of brings it down a little bit. So, right. anyway, up next is my book review of Jordan Mechner's Making of Chronicles. So let's do that. Jordan Mechner's The Making of Karataka. I've always been a huge fan of Jordan Mechner's Karataka. Released in 1984, it was one of the major games that bridged the gap between the pure arcade contest of the Golden Age of Atari and the richer storytelling of the Nintendo Age. Written for the Apple II, the game became the number one hit was released on every platform available at the time, and has since been re-released on iOS, Android, plus reimagined on Xbox Live Arcade and the PlayStation Network. While I always found the game fairly difficult, I loved the cinematics, the animation, the challenge the game offered. It was head and shoulders, plus a second head and shoulders, above nearly any game of the type I played at the time, and is one of the true classics from that golden age era. Since the game was released by Broderbund, a well-known game company, I was never especially curious about how it was made, how it was programmed, or the story behind its creation. At the time, I was 14 years old, an aspiring game programmer myself. I love reading stories about people who made their own games, put them in baggies, and sold them to computer stores all by themselves. I was just getting started writing public domain games in BASIC for my Atari 800 and uploading them to BBS systems as a manner of distribution pretty much as indie as you could get. I could not be bothered with the origins of a game from a major company like Broderbund. Since it came from a big software house, I just figured Karataka was one of a slate of light games Broderbund had in their production pipeline. Also, 
I knew the game was made for Apple II and Commodore 64 first. Since I was an Atari fan through and through, it was difficult for me to get my head around the fact that this amazing game was not an Atari first product. Eventually, it was released for the Atari 7800, Atari 800, and the Atari ST, but I don't think I could ever forgive the fact that it was written for Apple and Commodore first. That's the hell of being a long-time Atari fan. It took me 30 years, but I finally got around to finding out the origin story of the game by reading Jordan Mechner's book, The Making of Chronica. Now I wish I would studied the game and its story a long time ago, as I found it an essential narrative for indie game developers. Presented in diary format, the story does not start in the glass and wood paneled halls of a successful Marin County software company as I expected, but instead in a dorm room behind the CRT glow of an Apple II computer. Similar to my own bedroom behind this TV glow of an Atari computer. Jordan Mechner was a college student at Yale in 1982, trying his hand at writing computer games in assembly language for the Apple II. Since this is purportedly Mechner's diary, and there's no reason to disbelieve him, we don't get a full backstory of how he got to this point in his life. It starts abruptly as the readers drop into his thoughts about game development from the very start. When we meet Mechner, He's toiling away programming an arcade game named Death Bounce, the Apple II, attempting to apply lipstick to his pig in any way possible, hoping to shape it into the game he's always hoped it would be. It's not that Death Bounce is a bad game, it's just a game whose time has passed. By 1982, the arcade game era was almost over. Arcaders, as gamers were called back then, had seen and played almost every combination of single-screen action game. They were looking for more, and so it seems was Jordan Mechner. Eventually he gives up on Death Bounce, and a better idea takes over. A karate fighting game with movie-style storytelling. From the very beginning of the story, I was struck by the universality of Mechner's plight. I don't want to give away too much of it, but the ending is never in doubt. Anyone who knows the history of computer games knows that Karataka was an institution in the 80s. It was the type of game that computer owners booted up to make their game console-owning friends green with envy. However, Mechner's journey is the real star of the show here, and there are tons of great lessons within the text for indie game developers. I personally took away a lot of inspiration and validation of my own experiences. Mechner's Deathbound story is a great example. He put so much work into the game, but eventually cuts his losses with it and puts it aside for good. Any game developer that has a stack of unfinished ideas on their hard drive will instantly recognize this experience. Mechner is obviously a smart and artistic guy with the advantage of attending an Ivy League school, but even for him, Karataka becomes quite an achievement. The way he describes using every resource at his disposal to create gameplay, graphics, and sounds for Karataka is inspiring and not unlike the methods that many successful one or two person game shops employ today. Mechner also describes in detail the struggle between programming a game on contract and finishing his work on Karataka. Anyone who's tried to run an indie game shop attempting to bring their ideas to life while funding them with outside work will recognize the situation. At the same time, Mechner struggles with self-doubt, insecurity, and the feeling that he has somehow Miss the golden era should ring true with anyone who's ever made a game in this ever-changing technology landscape. Eventually, Mechner does join up with the big game company Broderbund after many months of working on his own. But even that experience mirrors the modern world. The in-house programmers Mechner meets at Broderbund feel overworked and unappreciated. Everyone seems to be looking for a way out and a chance to make it on their own. However, Mechner loves the camaraderie of making games with the team and nicely juxtaposes his life as a dorm room coder to his life meeting fellow developers and coming out of his shell while trying to finish Karataka at Broderbund. Karataka is not a game 
game made overnight. And this is another great lesson for indie game developers in the mobile digital age. At first, Mechner believes it will take just a few months to develop, but as he gets further and further into the project, he realizes just how much work is involved in creating such an epic contest. If you produced only the basic karate game he planned at the outset and then sold it to a publisher, he would have made a little money, but the game could, and probably would, have been easily copied by other programmers and made for other systems. Instead, he poured two years of hard work into a game that was so advanced for the time in every possible way, it was almost impossible to clone without great effort. While the story is more than 30 years old, the parallels in the making of Karataka to developing indie game today are almost uncanny. For me, reading it was an experience of universal truth, validation, and exhilaration at the unfolding story of Mechner's struggle and success. Technology always changes. Platforms rise and fall. Companies go in and out of business. However, the drive of a single person with a unique vision is at the heart of making great games. Reading about Jordan Mechner's struggle to bring Karataka to life is at once both inspirational and cathartic. It should be required reading for any developer currently toiling in the modern game industry. Hey, so so yeah. I mean, I think that if you anyone who makes games, um, who aspires to make games, I mean, there's a lot of great lessons in the making of Karataka about just you know how to build games, how to think about building games, and how to do it on your own. And you know, it's really cool, really good book. I um, I remember downloading one of the first things that downloaded to my Kindle like years ago, maybe ten years ago, was that book. And I remember reading it. I was so enthralled with his story of having to go move into Broderbund, like, yeah, in, yeah. and and the way it worked and all the work <laughs> that went into it. He even mentions a little bit about the Atari version. I think it really was the Atari. Oh, actually, in the in the Prince of Persia book, he mentions that there's an Atari ST version being made. He doesn't mention a lot about any versions other than the Apple because he those are the ones he personally. That's what he programmed. Yeah, that's on. his thing. Yeah, the Apple Macintosh and the Apple IIe but and the Apple like II you alluded to, he has another book called The Making of Prince of Persia, which is really good as well. So the books are in diary format, and then he has, you know, embellished in places where he knows that the information was thin and he remembers about it, but. They're really good. I think I don't think they're super popular. They should be. They should be. And I think that, you know, people should, if you're interested in 80s games or developing, you know, games for 8-bit platforms or how people did it back in the day for, you know, on your own and with working for a company like Broderbund but under a contract, it's just, it's just really, really really great insight into that time and making games. So No, I'm going to uh, it is pronounced broader bund but i like broader bund because that's okay. what we said back then yeah all of us this this era is us since we you can tell that we this is this is what i read somewhere someone said if someone mispronounces something give them a break because they 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 learn the word by reading it right? right we learned all of our words by reading them in magazines we had no community really we read stuff in our computer magazines that's why it's and video game magazines, that's why it's Karataka instead of Karatika. That's why it's Broderbund instead of Broderbund, you know, whatever. I don't really, it doesn't really bother me at all. You know, I'll, I'll keep, I have to keep saying it the way I remember it. So I didn't even know what a synapse was back then. So I don't even know what I called synapse. <laughs> you call it snappies. I may call it snappies because I was because of snappies. my dyslexia. Right. Yeah. But then I think, then I, later on, I figured out it was synapse. Took yeah. a little while though. Yeah. That's um, so on that note, this is this is a good episode, Steve. Thanks for um, I, I liked it. So I mean, and I loved your review and everything. I'm glad we got together to do this. The next episode, Steve, is going to be the Thomas Cherry Holmes interview. Nice. And um, I'm hope to have the, my FujiNet all hooked up to my Atari 800 XL, and um, working with it and, and trying to pull software directly off my PC through uh, through the internet through the Wi-Fi. And uh, to test other things too. It has it has an SD card slot too, so I'm going to test it it's out right. and see how it works. I may do a video or not. I haven't put any videos up in a while. I've been, I mean, I spent all my spare time breaking two Atari STEs. Yeah. So stop it. I do have came in the mail though yesterday, um, a package of two new TOS 2.6 chips. 
um, because I broke the toss chips trying to take them out. I'm thinking that I'm going to save those. Uh, either I put them in with a machine that well, that works, if I ever get one, or I'm going to because um, your machine already has toss 2.6 in it. I love it. Or I'm going to wait until I ha find another STE cheap that works, and I want to put new toss in it. And I'm going to drop these two toss chips in it. But I'm um, I think I'm for now I'm going to leave the ST the broken STEs as is. And I'm going to use my uh, my Hatari emulator, which is incredible. So Steam, but the Hatari emulator actually does STE sound incredibly well. So cool. I think I can use that for now for programming until I find another STE somewhere. But they're becoming more and more expensive. Yeah, it's harder. And thanks to everyone who wrote in uh, to our email and, and on to Twitter and the website. And that's where the emails are actually coming from the website for the most part. Yeah, we actually welcome any feedback you have, suggestions, other things. So please send anything. Thank you. And, um, and especially thanks to Ferg at the 2600 Game by Game podcast who continues to um, give us props and, and he continues to listen to episodes and we love his podcast. And also, you know, we get our ad play or our ad, our ad swap happens in Atari Bytes every single episode. Especially thanks uh, Bill over Atari Bytes for continuing to play our, our ad swap and we uh, will play Bill's ad right. Hey everybody, it's Bill from Atari Bytes. Every week on my show, I play a great old game, then I read an original short story I wrote inspired by that game. Loosely inspired. Okay, often completely different. Sometimes not even based on any sort of reality. In contrast, on Into the Vertical Blank, which you're listening to right now, you get real stories about real people and what these games mean to them. So keep listening. First place has two. And oh, he does. He does. He has a different one, though. He doesn't even want to make one. No, he won't even give me an answer. He gets enough people in his pocket, but I'd rather, I'd love to play a fur ad swap. Yeah, me too. Steve, I, let's uh, let's head everyone out with a with the 8-Bit Wonderland by Tony Longworth. Oh, cool. I love this one. Okay, Steve, into the vertical blank. Into the vertical blank. Into the vertical blank. So, um, 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 I beat that with it. Um, 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 shoot, shoot. Uh, and that's a, that, um, 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 uh, you know, um, um, I, I don't, um, 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 Demogistris, um, uh, um, um, uh, um, Eric, um, you should, He has he run he uh yes. um 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 so um you know you know um 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 uh us um um and and it's um and uh my uh uh, uh um uh um um uh, um, is, uh, um, the, uh, um, 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 and the, and the, um, 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 
in uh, 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 but um, this uh, uh, um, <clears throat> um, 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 so, so what, um, 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 anyway, uh, um, 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 and, um, and it was, uh, um, 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 you know, you save, you, 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 you know, like, like, but you know, in a in a single game form, or or, or like it's you know, um, 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 and I um, 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 so um, uh, anyway, well, um, we're gonna, you know. Um, 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 to, uh, um, and, and we have, um, we, um, uh, the, the, uh, let me see, um, we probably do, yeah, um, hold on, no, uh, hold on, okay, hold on, let me, yeah, yeah, okay, so say it again, um, I, why is my brain not working? Prepare to write new data, V blank ending. An 8-Bit Rocket Studios production.